It is indeed a great blessing for us to be together on the first of the week. God has called us to this fellowship. He's called us to the fellowship of His Son. He's allowed us to partake at His table in the sacrifice that Jesus made on our behalf. That great peace offering, we learn in the book of Leviticus that there was a need to partake of that offering with the priest and with God. We are the priests in His service today. What a blessing it is for us to be together. I thank you for being here. What an encouragement to see there's visitors with us. So many of our number are out today, several online with us as well. Thank you for that encouragement. And it is just a great thing for us to be together according to God's will. We pray that you'll be edified as we study together. I'll have you open in 2 Timothy. A few moments ago, our brother read from 2 Timothy chapter 3. Today we'll be examining this text as we are setting our hearts on thinking about our teaching over the next couple of years. We're about to establish this afternoon the pattern for our teaching. Perhaps some of the classes already will be established for the next couple of years. We'll be talking about that together and making plans at least for uh, how we're going to go forward in both the adult and the children's classes. I think it's important for us to think about the instruction in righteousness that we receive as we look in to the Scriptures. As we look at this text, we're told in verse 16 that the Scripture is given by inspiration of God. We're told about three things that are specifically mentioned that the Scripture brings us. It's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, and for correction. And as we'll see as we look at those three things, that is a process that is then described as being instruction in righteousness. And that's what I want us to focus on today as we look at this lesson. All Scripture has been given by God, and therefore it is profitable. We need to understand that everything that we have here is what God wanted us to have. Every detail, every word here is what He wrote down. And the more that we look at it, the more we gain this profit that He would have us gain. He wants us to be taught, and this word doctrine literally means teaching. It is the transmission of information. God, the wise, the, the revealer of all things that are good, has revealed His will to us through the Scripture. And He expects that information to be transmitted faithfully, not only from Himself to His prophets, but then from His prophets to His people, and then from His people generations going forward. And we stand at that particular part in the history. We've received the fullness of His revelation we stand at the, at the point where we're transmitting it now down to the next generation and the generation around us. The problem is so often we confuse this idea of teaching with education. There's a difference between teaching and education. Teaching is a part of education. So often we'll send our children to school and we expect that the teachers are going to educate them. That's not really their job. The job of the teachers is to give them information. It's our job as parents to educate our children. Sometimes we expect as we uh, come to church that the, the preachers are going to educate us. And that's really only a part of their function. The teaching is the primary function, the transmission of information. And so often we're frustrated then that we're not being educated properly by those who are only meant really to transfer information. It's interesting in Portuguese, when someone is rude, when someone acts in sort of an ignorant way, we'll say they're uneducated. They're mal educado. It's a word that means poorly educated. And that's it. They might have the good information, but they haven't put it into good practice yet. We actually see that sort of reflected in Acts chapter 4. We're just looking at this on the study Friday night. 
I thought was interesting. It's not something I have on the slide here. If you look at Acts chapter 4, something they noted about Peter and John. Here is the great council of the Sanhedrin, these high and lofty Jews who are the, the noble teachers of Israel. And they look at the boldness of Peter and John. This is Acts 4 verse 13. And they perceive that they are uneducated and untrained men. Yet they also notice something else. They had been with Jesus. Here are men who had great information, but they really looked down on them because they hadn't been trained and educated by the great educators of the day. I dare say Jesus was the great educator of their day. They rejected him as well, however. But Jesus had been with them for three years, not only giving them the information, but educating them in how to use it. They were well educated, just not by the schools that these rabbis and these, uh, this council would recognize. But the point of all of this is that this word doctrine that's used here is just a word that means the transmission of information. There is a need for that. We'll talk about what that is. Teachers and preachers serve a purpose in the process of education, but really the main role of an evangelist is to get the information of the gospel out there, is to evangelize. And the main role of a teacher at school is to give the child the information that then when they go home and have that information, the parents can put all that together and educate the child. But teaching is primarily a transmission of information. But there's a need for that. We need the information that's contained here. We need information as to the what of the gospel. That's so important. The apostles in their role as teachers, as their role of giving out the doctrine, they taught that Jesus, the one that these multitudes of Jews had crucified, had in fact been exalted by God to be both Lord and Christ. We're not going to read that long text from Acts chapter 2, but all of uh, Peter's point in that sermon is that this one that they had rejected, the one who had been attested before them by miracles and wonders, the one who the Scriptures had been pointing to, the one they'd been waiting for for centuries, this one that they rejected and crucified, he comes to his conclusion in verse 36, uh, I'm sorry, in verse uh, 32, that Jesus had been raised up by God. They were all witnesses. He had exalted him, and he had made him, uh, in verse 36, both Lord and Christ. And so that's the information that Peter was giving. He tied all this together with information they already had. And he was synthesizing information for them. He's starting the process of educating them. But he's really just revealing information. We're going to see part of the process depended on their own hearts. Later on, they sort of reproved themselves. We'll see that as part of what education involves. Paul told the Corinthians, as he had uh, come in among them in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 2, I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. He's been talking all through the first part of uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, the second part of 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and up into this part of chapter 2, about how the Greeks just love knowledge. Oh, they just love to get all of this information. And Paul says, you know what? When I came, I gave you straight information. <laughs> I determined I was just going to come and give you this information about Jesus and Him crucified. That was Paul's job as an evangelist there, was to give them that information. Now, he stayed for a long time and educated them as well. But the first part was the transmission of the doctrine, of the information. The truth is, faith would be impossible without the transmission of information. Romans 10, 17, Paul says, faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the doctrine of God, hearing by the word of the Lord, this transmission of information. In fact, I do want to read this longer text in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 
He had already told them early on that he came knowing nothing among them except Christ and him crucified. Here in chapter 15, as they're faltering in their faith, they're beginning to doubt about the resurrection. He tells them the importance of this information and how it ties to their faith. Now notice I'm saying faith would be impossible without this information. Watch how Paul lines this out. 1 Corinthians 15, beginning at verse 1. Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preach to you, which also you received and in which you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast that word which I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He rose again the third day according to the Scriptures, and that He was seen by Cephas, then by the twelve. After that, he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remained to the present, but some have fallen asleep. After that, he was seen by James, then by all the apostles. Then last of all, he was seen by me also, as by one born out of due time. For I am the least of the apostles, who am not worthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all, Yet not I, but the grace of God which was in me. Therefore, whether it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. Now if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty, and your faith is also empty. (laughs) He gave them information. He gave them facts. The gospel is a series of facts about a man who came and lived a perfect, sinless life. And because of that, he was hated, he was rejected, he was crucified. But then, because he was sinless, he resurrected. God rose him again. Sin had no hold over him. And all of the scriptures had pointed to the one who would do this being the Messiah, being the Christ, being the Son of God, being Lord, Lord of the living and of the dead. Judge of the living and of the dead. And so Paul revealed that information. He says, and if you don't believe that information, then your faith is in vain. If you don't believe the facts that I registered before you of this man who resurrected, then you can't resurrect. Your faith is empty and you're still in your sins. Faith is impossible without this information. And there's more to it. We have to accept the information. We have to test the information. But that's what the gospel message is. It's a series of facts. It's information that needs to be transmitted. Sometimes we fear preaching the gospel because we're afraid of all the questions that'll come. When we preach the gospel, when we share it with people, we share facts. We lay out information. What they do with it is up to them. It's not our responsibility to force them to believe it. It is our responsibility to lay the facts before them and allow them to make an informed decision based on what they've seen. And so that's what doctrine is. It's the revealing or transmission of information. We need the information that's the what of the gospel. We also need the information that describes the how of the gospel. There in Acts chapter 2, 3,000 people were converted that day. You notice what they did? (laughs) After their conversion, every day they came together. Notice the word that's used there. I can find it, Acts chapter 2, verse 42. They continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. The apostles are giving them information. Sometimes I'll ask people, how much did these 3,000 people know about the doctrine of Christ on the day they were baptized? They didn't know anything. It hadn't been revealed yet. It started to be revealed on the day these 3,000 were baptized. 
And so they hung around the apostles who are now receiving the doctrine. And the apostles are giving them this information. They're transmitting the information as it comes directly to them from God through the Spirit. These 3,000 people were saying, what do we do now? They said, what must we do? We crucified the Lord. And then they say, now what do we do now that we've believed on Him? And so that's what the apostles are teaching. They're revealing this information. And so at the very beginning, this was a daily process. It ought to be a daily process for all of us, but how much more at the beginning? When you're first learning how to do this, I want to know more. Tell me more. Show me more. Give me information that I can process. That's the first step in education. We actually see this pattern over and over. It's not as distinct as right here in Acts chapter 2, but I want you to notice it. and Maybe you'll start paying attention to it as you look at these texts. Acts 10 verse 48 at the house of Cornelius. Remember they were converted there. They uh, first had received the Holy Spirit. Then Peter said they all must be baptized in water. Uh, verse 48, he commanded them to be baptized in the name of the Lord. Then they asked him to stay a few days. wonder why. <laughs> they needed information. They just now heard about Jesus. They just were converted to him. They said, will you stick around? <laughs> I want to learn some more. I need to know this information. In Acts chapter 11, verse 26, we just read that. Paul, uh, uh, Barnabas had gone to Tarsus to seek Saul, the apostle Paul. He brought him back to Antioch. Why? So they could spend a whole year teaching the church a great many things. They were still revealing the doctrine, and that needed to happen. In chapter 16 and verse 15, when Lydia is converted there in Philippi, she says, if you judge that I am faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. I need information. And we see that over and over and over through the book of Acts. People are converted, and then they stick around for a few days so they can learn the information they need. They need to learn how to act. So that's an aspect of the equipping of the saints. Again, that's a portion of the work of preachers and teachers. Ephesians 4, verses 7 through 11, the, all of those who are dealing with the Word, preachers, uh, pastors and teachers, prophets and apostles from the beginning, are revealing that for the equipping of the saints for their ministry, for their service. They need to know the how of the gospel. We all need that. But we also need the information, the doctrine as to the why of the gospel. This perhaps is more simple. Romans 1.16, Paul says, the gospel is the power of God to salvation. Why do people need to hear the gospel? That's where salvation is. And if they haven't heard it, they don't have access to salvation. There is no other name for salvation than Jesus. That's what Peter and John had just told the council when they realized these uneducated and untrained men, they must have been with Jesus. He said, there's no other name given under heaven by which we must be saved. That's the only name for salvation. It's tied to the gospel. We need to be speaking the gospel. And in fact, as Paul was speaking there in Acts 17 to these pagans, these philosophers in Athens, he says, because God has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained, he has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. Why am I telling you all these things, Paul said? Because there's coming a day of judgment. You need to know the why of the gospel. Your only hope for salvation from judgment that is sure to come. So there's a need for transmission of information. And so this information is taught by the Scripture, but it's taught through faithful men. Those who've received the information then faithfully transmit it to others, and we see that pattern over and over again through the New Testament. Now there's more to it than that. We also saw that all Scripture is given and is profitable not only for doctrine, not only for the transmission of information, but also for 
reproof. This is something we don't care much for. The word would be testing or proving. It's actually either an approval or a disapproval. Reproof in itself is neutral. Depends on where we are on the side of that reproof, whether it's negative or positive toward us. Are we being approved or disapproved? But we often see reproof in and of itself as being something negative. Like I said, it's neutral. And so you think about when we're going to school. Oh, I don't like that teacher. They only give hard tests. All they're trying to do is cause me to fail. All they ever do is give me a low grade. I remember my friends talking like that. I was one of those nerds who always liked tests. I thought, well, I'll see if I know it or not. Usually I did okay on tests because I'd been paying attention in class. But for the ones who didn't, oh no, the teacher's trying to give us a bad grade. You earned that grade. <laughs> teacher's not got something out against you. The teacher's trying to help you. They're wanting to see where are things that they maybe didn't teach you properly, where are things you didn't learn properly. That's what a test is for. It's a good thing in the end, but it's really neutral in and of itself. What about at work once we're adults? Oh, that boss only gives me bad reviews. <laughs> I never get a good evaluation. He only ever sees the negative I do. Well, of course. He's trying to get you to do the positive, so he's got to point out what you're not doing correctly. Now, a good boss will also say, hey, but you did a great job here. <laughs> but some don't. But what they're trying to do is say, look, here's what I hired you for, and you're not doing it. Can you do these things? <laughs> that's not negative. If you want to keep your job, that's actually positive. It means it's showing you where you need to work. And that's really what we need with our faith. What happens, though, because of this kind of culture we have of, well, the teacher's trying to fail me. The boss just wants to fire me. We have this negative attitude about reproof. So our brother comes to me and says, look, I, I notice you've been really absent in all of our studies. I haven't seen you at worship for a month. Or you seem like you're having a real hard time with frustration or you're struggling with something. And so when a brother comes and says those things, well, who are you to judge me? I know you're not perfect either. And all of a sudden we get defensive. We feel like we're being accused, even if there was not an accusatory tone. What a blessing to have brethren who notice that we're not doing well and say, can I help you? We are called to do that. That's part of reproof. And it ought to be guided by the Scripture. I'm not saying just someone doesn't like what you're doing and comes and gets on your case all the time. But someone who can tell you're not doing well by the Scriptures, you know what? I thank God for men who come to me and said, look, Carl, I don't think you're doing very well in this area. Here's something that sounds like you need to work on. And usually I'll say, well, I don't like hearing that, but you're right. I don't like hearing it because it's true. I need to change that. I need to work on that. And the scriptures have shown me where my weaknesses are and where my strengths ought to be. And so we need to learn to accept reproof and to see it as something useful and good. In our walk with Christ, we need our faith to be tested. An untested faith is going to be a weak faith. You think about a bodybuilder. He tests the strength of his muscles. How does he do it? By lifting weight. <laughs> That's how you test. I can lift five pounds. I must be really strong. And you see the lady next to you lifting 20. Well, I guess I'm not that strong. Let me try to lift 25. I can't do that. So then you test a little bit at a time and you train and eventually you get to where you can lift 50. <laughs> okay. That's how it works. That's a testing of your muscles. What are we doing to test our faith? Think about what James says. <laughs> Here's how you know whether your faith is good or not. What happens when difficulties come? <laughs> is your faith strong? James 1, verses 2 through 4. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. What? Knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. So I've got to go through struggles? <laughs> 
I've got to have difficult times. James said, you should be happy for those. Because it's at those moments where you see that your faith is helping you. There's the old popular poster that's got the sets of footprints in the sand. And you see two sets of footprints at first, and there's only one set of footprints, and the person's complaining, well, Jesus left me all alone when I needed him the most. But at the bottom it says, no, that's when he was carrying me. That's the point. Our faith is really tested when we realize I can't do it on my own. I need Jesus to carry me through this. And I only learn that when my faith is really tested, when something difficult comes along. That's what Paul said. I've learned to be strongest when I'm weak. I've learned that it's God's strength that makes me strong, not my strength. And so we need to understand that trials can really be a joy for us. It's not only James who said that. In Romans chapter 5, we see the same idea. Romans chapter 5, starting at verse 3, notice how Paul talks about trials. You think anybody went through trials more than Paul did, besides Jesus himself? Paul suffered. But he says, We glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance, and perseverance, character, and character, hope. Now hope does not disappoint, because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Do you want real hope? Let your faith be tested. Stand strong in the midst of trial, and you'll have hope that you can withstand any trial. That's the only time you know if your faith is really strong. We really need to examine ourselves to see where our character flaws are, to see where there's things we still need to be working on. Back in James chapter 1, James says, Lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness, James 1.21. Receive with meekness the implanted word. Don't rebuff. Don't say, I don't need that. Say, okay, I probably need this. Receive with meekness that implanted word which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man observing his natural face in a mirror. He observes himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. But he who looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it, and is not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this one will be blessed in what he does. Jesus said that following him was going to be taking up a cross. He didn't say, pick up your crochet needles and sit back on the couch. Take up a cross. It's going to be difficult. It's going to be work. It's going to be heavy. But do it, and it'll change who you are. That's what we're supposed to be doing. When we do the work, it changes us. So we need to be proved. Proverbs 27, 17 says that one man sharpens another as iron sharpens arm. We need iron. We need each other. I'm so thankful for those who have helped me to sharpen myself. And I'm grateful for opportunities that I've had to help others to sharpen themselves. We must be testing ourselves to see if there's something we don't fully grasp and aren't practicing like we ought to. Jesus came to the Pharisees and the Sadducees. In Matthew 22, the Sadducees wanted to argue that there's no such thing as a resurrection that Jesus isn't always talking about. And he eventually calls them out and says, you don't know the Scriptures nor the power of God. Here's people who prided themselves on being able to quote the Scripture. He says in Matthew 22, 29, you don't know the Scriptures nor the power of God. You haven't tested yourselves. You haven't understood the doctrine of God. And he goes straight to a passage which they would quote and says, God is the God of the living, not of the dead. There is a resurrection. Even though Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob have been dead for 400 years, God says, I am the God of these people, not I was the God. They're still alive. They're just somewhere else. Hebrews chapter 5, the Hebrew writer, really explains this concept more deeply. This need for testing and growing and reproving. 
Hebrews 5 verse 12, By this time you ought to be teachers, but you need someone to teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God. You've come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But solid food belongs to those who are of full age. That is, those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. We expect a baby is going to suck on a bottle, on a pacifier. It's not going to be eating steak. But once the teeth come in, we want them to be eating apples and steak and things that are going to have them using their teeth so they learn how to use them properly and don't choke to death the first time a piece of food comes into their mouth. When we're adults and all we're doing is sucking on a bottle, we walk around with a pacifier, someone's going to say something's wrong with that person. They didn't mature like they were supposed to. When we see an adult that has a pacifier, we recognize there's been some sort of problem. That's not natural. It's not normal for the growth and maturity process. We need to understand, are we acting like children with respect to how much we've grown in the Lord? Or have we exercised our faculties by reason of use? Have we been training ourselves? Have we reproved ourselves and seen where we need real growth? And so there must be reproof whether approval or disapproval. Some things it's going to be great. Yeah, I'm doing that. What a wonderful thing. I can see the fruit of the Spirit in my life. Another place I'm going to say, I can still see the works of the flesh in my life. I need to approve and disapprove of my life. And I need to work and let God work through me. And it's the Scriptures that will guide that. Romans 12, as we lay ourselves as a living sacrifice on the altar of God, being transformed every day. It's a sacrifice. It's not easy. But it's a transformation that comes. 1 Peter chapter 2 says, like James 1, lay aside all malice, lay aside all evil, lay aside these things that were part of your life and desire as newborn babes the meat of the Word, the milk of the Word. You need to be nourished by it, and that'll help us to grow. But we've got to be willing to reprove ourselves as we do that. Finally, in the text in 2 Timothy chapter 3, we're told that the Scripture is useful for correction. Now, that's what it sounds like we've been talking about, but this word's a little more difficult here. It's a word that means to restore, to put something back into an upright state. If a bottle's been knocked over, to stand it up. In Portuguese, this word means to be facing north. It's kind of an interesting way. We don't, we don't say this in English anymore, but the idea is to put your compass straight, to get back to facing north. You want everything to be lined up. When you're looking at a map, you've got it upside down. You're going to be driving the wrong way until you realize, wait a second, north is this way. Once you do that, everything else lines up like it's supposed to. That's the idea of this word for correction. Get everything oriented properly, and then I can see where my errors are, what I need to fix. And so while we think of reproof as a treatment for incorrect thinking, we need to really consider, am I handling this the right way? Correction is needed when the action, because of the thinking, has gone awry. That's the difference between these two. So reproof fixes our thinking, correction fixes our actions. And there's a need for both of those types of work. The best thing, always, is you receive the instruction, you process it properly, you grasp what it means, and then you walk as you've been instructed. You just go do what it says. That's always the best way, but that's not always what we want to do. Proverbs 12, verse 1. Whoever loves instruction loves knowledge, but he who hates correction is stupid. So you start off on your map and you realize that you need to go left, and so you go left and you're heading down and you realize, wait a second, it doesn't feel right, and someone says you got the map upside down, you were supposed to go right, 
Well, it takes some correcting. I don't want to do that. I've already driven 30 miles this way. I'll just keep driving this way. Eventually, I'll get there. How much longer is it going to take? <laughs> yeah, go all the way around the world that way. Turn around now. <laughs> it's going to be hard to drive another 30 miles back the way you came, but much better than the 2,600 or so to go around the other way. But sometimes we're so stubborn. <laughs> I don't want that correction. I'll, I'll figure it out. Turn the map around. Turn the car around. Learn to do what you ought to. And so don't hate correction when it comes. That's what a fool does. We need to accept it and recognize it. That men, I'm talking to myself here, it's so hard sometimes when that correction first comes. No, I've got this. I'm, listen to me. I'm telling you, you don't got this. Yes, I do. Look, I know what I'm doing. No, you started out wrong. And you're going to end up way in the wrong place. Much harder usually for men to accept that. Once, as soon as we accept it, recognize it, and turn around, things go much better. Thank you, wives. Uh, so, uh, but the idea is, Sometimes there is much more needed than just the reproof. You correct someone's thinking, but yet their action continues the way it was. You're going to have to do some correcting of the action there. And so that's what we see. Look at Galatians chapter 2. I love the loving spirit with which Paul corrects the apostle Peter. Peter's acting terribly. He's got the right information. He's actually already processed it correctly in some situations. He's been doing okay in some places. But in Antioch, he's having a struggle, and Paul has to call him out. Galatians chapter 2, verse 11. Now when Peter had come to Antioch, I withstood him to his face, because he was to be blamed. For before certain men came from James, he would eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing those who were of the circumcision. And the rest of the Jews also played the hypocrite with them, so that even Barnabas was carried away with their hypocrisy. But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter before them all, If you, being a Jew, live in the manner of Gentiles and not as the Jews, why do you compel Gentiles to live as Jews? Whew. Later on, in 2 Peter, Peter calls the Apostle Paul our beloved brother, Apostle Paul. He accepted that correction. That must have been really hard. He was there with all these people that had been looking up to Peter. He's an apostle after all. But he's messed up, and he's causing others to be led astray. He's an apostle. He's leading people. Paul says, no, sir, you will not. And Peter says, you're right. You're right. That's correction. Now, that's what's needed sometimes. More than just Peter kind of looking at things, he, he knew the doctrine, but he wasn't putting it into proper practice. He needed to change. In James chapter 5, we see a similar response that's needed among ourselves. James chapter 5, verses 19 and 20. Brethren, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save a soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. This is among brethren. Someone has decided that their practice is going in the wrong direction and a brother says, no way, I'm not letting that happen. And you bring him back, you save his soul. You can convince him to come. We see that idea over and over of correcting a brother who's in error. That's needed. More than just reproof. The idea of correction is to elicit a change. Because if you don't, something greater must come, and that is discipline. And discipline is much deeper than just this momentary correction, this riding of the, of the wrong direction. Discipline comes when there needs to be a cutting off. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 5. They've allowed this situation to go on so long that discipline is the only course of action at this point. 
1 Corinthians chapter 5, look at verse 1. It's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and such sexual immorality is not even named among the Gentiles. A man has his father's wife. And they've rather been boasting about how they can tolerate this kind of sin in their midst. Paul says, that's not good. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, verse 4, when you're gathered together along with my spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that his spirit may be saved in the day of, our, of the Lord Jesus. Your glorying is not good. <laughs> Get rid of him. Don't let his leaven leaven the whole lump of you. <laughs> you are to be holy, and you can't have an unholy union like this in your midst. Cut him off that he'll learn that this is unholy. You're accepting something, and he's going to say, well, they're accepting it. It must be okay. <laughs> Don't do that. Romans chapter 16, we recently saw that Paul was saying, when there are divisive people that are teaching things that are not in accordance with the doctrine you've learned, mark them, note them, and avoid them. Do not be around those kind of people, and don't allow them to have an influence in the congregation. That's discipline. <laughs> Correction comes before that. Once he gets to the point of discipline, Usually it's too late. The person is going to be offended by the discipline is going to turn from the Lord. Correction is so much better. So there is a need to correct, to bring someone back to an upright state and maybe our, our own selves in, our, in terms of our actions. But it is the Scripture that's correctly applied by faithful men that's going to govern that correction. We'll look at Galatians 6 verses 1 and 2 just as a, uh, the kind example of that. Galatians chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. I can find it. <clears throat> Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. Well, help him. Those who consider themselves to be spiritual, those who have some experience with spiritual matters, help these people that are struggling. Go help them. That's good. That's needed. Philippians chapter 4, Paul's not there in Philippi. But you've got Euodia and Syntyche that are having this discussion, this disagreement. He says, they're both servants. They've both been serving the Lord faithfully. You, my faithful companion, help them. Help them to sort this out, that they can all speak the same things. What a blessing to have people like that in our congregations. Doctrine, reproof, and correction. Those three things are available in the Scripture. And the end of that process is instruction in righteousness. Literally, that's training. That's education. This whole process of receiving information, of testing to see whether we've understood it properly, and then correcting where we haven't acted in accordance with it. As we do those things, we're being educated, instructed, uh, instructed in righteousness. We're cultivating the virtue of serving Christ. The Greek word here is pedia. You might think of pediatrics or pedagogy or encyclopedia. That's this word that's used for this idea of education. And so it's the whole training and education of children, which relates to the cultivation of mind and morals, employs for this purpose commands and admonitions, but sometimes reproof and punishment. That's the idea of this whole process. And so as we look at that text in 2 Timothy, I want to suggest to you that it's not giving really four things there. It's giving three things, and the fourth thing is the combination of all of those. We're looking at... Um, the doctrine, reproof, and correction. That's the process that is then defined as being instruction in righteousness. So let's have a quick look at what that would look like in practice. We see instruction in righteousness starting out with the transmission of information, perhaps from a pulpit, 
perhaps from my just reading what's been transmitted in a written form here, sitting at a table with others studying and discussing the Bible, all of that initially is just the transmission of information. It's the doctrine part. The reproof comes when I'm sitting by myself or maybe sitting with some other person and we're saying, you know what, I don't think I've done this well. <laughs> I really need to examine a little bit more deeply what this text is saying. How does this apply to me? What am I doing that doesn't really line up with what that says? And I scratch my head a bit and I say, look, I'm going to go look at that again. I'm going to restudy this. I'm going to see how I can apply this. That's where reproof comes. And sometimes that's all that's needed. I just go back and read it again. I study it again. I recognize, look, I didn't get that right the first time. This is what it means. But sometimes for a while, I've been following a course of action. And I haven't noticed that I'm errant in my walking and someone comes along and says, you are the man. I'm so thankful for those who've come to me and said, you are the man, like Nathan said to David after he told him the story of the ewe lamb that had been taken. It was David who had taken the precious wife of Uriah, his, his friend. You are the man. David was rightfully indignant. Sometimes we get rightfully indignant about sin when we see it, and then someone says, but you're doing the same thing. And we ought to continue to be indignant about that. We ought to change when we see that. That's correction. And it involves people that love each other being willing to say to each other, you need help. I want to help you. I need help. I want you to help me. That's what we're here together for. And this all comes through this process that's known as instruction and righteousness. What a beautiful plan that God has laid out in His Word. We have everything we need to become complete servants of God. In fact, that's what the very next verses say. After he teaches about that, he says there's a reason for all of this instruction and righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, that is adequate, that's perfectly fitted or suited to the work that's to be done. The word really means mature or perfect in preparation. That whole process of instruction and righteousness brings the one who wants to be in service to the holy God, brings him into condition to do that, teaches him, helps him understand exactly how it's done. And so without the Scripture's instruction in righteousness, we wouldn't be able to approach God. But because we've been instructed in righteousness, we can come before God. and We can ask Him for the help we need to serve. The man of God can be thoroughly equipped, the Scripture says. That is, furnished, entirely finished for what is being done, accomplished. It's a process that transforms us into what we need to be, but it also gives us all the tools that we need to use as we serve God in all things. I want to look at Exodus 25 quickly. This had to be a moment with a little question mark over people's heads. Moses comes to them. You remember when they came out of Egypt, they plundered their neighbors. They were given all kinds of gold and silver and scarlet and all these articles, these fine linens. And they carry that all out of Egypt. And of course, they're thinking they've been made rich. They've made earrings already and pendants. They've got all these great things. And Moses comes to them in Exodus 25. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the children of Israel that they bring me an offering from everyone who gives it willingly with his heart, you shall take my offering. And this is the offering which you shall take from them. Gold, silver, bronze, blue, purple, and scarlet thread, fine linen and goat's hair, ram skins dyed red, badger skins, acacia wood. And he lists off all of the plunder they brought out of Egypt. <laughs> he says, I want you to just ask them if I can have this. Just tell them to bring it to me willingly. Well, they do. They begin to bring even their own earrings. They bring and give this stuff to the Lord, and then He tells them what it's for. <laughs> it's amazing how God did this. 
He made their hearts be willing first. And as they had these willing hearts and began to involve themselves, he expressed to them, here's what I'm going to use this for. (laughs) What a blessing that was for them when he got to verses 8 and 9 and says, Let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. According to all that I show you, that is the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all its furnishings, just so you shall make it. All that they gave him was to build this beautiful temple so that God could be right in the midst. But he allowed them to have the desire first, maybe not even understanding what it was for, trusting that God had a better plan for all that than they did. And so as they gave, the plan was revealed. What a beautiful thing. That's what God is building in us. Ephesians chapter 2, we're the temple of the Lord. As we learn and as we give ourselves, as we willingly offer ourselves to the Lord, He begins to make out of us something that we could never have imagined before, something so much more beautiful than what we would have purposed with our lives. There's power in the life that we've been given. We have so many people we can reach. And yet God says, let me make you more powerful. Let me give you a better reach. Let me give you a better purpose. Without the Scripture's instruction in righteousness, we wouldn't be able to serve God properly. We could serve ourselves. We could serve some purpose here on earth. People are always looking for their meaning. But God says, He's our meaning. And the purpose that He wants us to serve will really be a meaning and give meaning to our lives. It's one thing to have the right information about the gospel message. That's important. We need that. But it's another thing entirely to have the appropriate tools and the proper training to use them well. So as we consider this teaching program we're about to begin for these next two years, we need to be thinking about how that's really the point of the spear. It's the transmission and the encouragement of the information that's coming so that we can be educating ourselves and reproving ourselves and training ourselves in righteousness for the holy purposes that God has called us to. Paul told Timothy back in verses 14 and 15 of 2 Timothy chapter 3 that he had been being trained in righteousness all of his life. He had known the Holy Scriptures since, really, his childhood. And that because of that, he was fully equipped and ready to go. He knew what he needed to know. But what about you? I dare say most of you haven't been trained from childhood. Some of this is new information. What blessed information it is. And for some, there's been no equipping at all. Are you equipped to appear before the holy God and to serve Him in truth? Or are you yet without instruction and lost in your sins? The information part that began was, there's going to be a day of judgment. There is a Savior who wants to forgive you of your sins. There's a right way to come to Him. That's the information part. Then comes the reproving and the training so that I can properly serve. But if you haven't started at the beginning, you can't get to the end. If you haven't even opened the map, it doesn't matter if it's right side up or upside down, you're never going to get anywhere. If we can help you with that first part, we want to help you. We want to share with you the gospel message. We want to let it change your life and the way you think and the purpose that it will give you if you'll embrace it and come to the Lord. If we can help you with that today, we want you to come. If you know what you need to do, we'd love to have you come in repentance being forgiven of your sins as we baptize you into Christ and you become a member of of His great congregation of people. We'd help you with that today if that's where you are. If not, if you'd like to study more, we'd love to help you with that. If you're a Christian and you're struggling, you haven't allowed yourself to become instructed fully in righteousness, if you need correction or reproof, if you need the help of your brethren to walk alongside with you, 
whatever need you have, please make it known. We're going to stand and sing a song to encourage your decision. Let us know now.